I'm gonna wait till mine finishes. Is yours almost at the end? Mine's almost done. Mine's almost at the end, yeah. I wonder what's I wanna see what happens when it gets there. Mine just reached the Oh, oh, oh. It's almost there. It's so close. Oh, oh it's there. Oh, now, oh now my God. What's it doing now? Now, now, now it's, it's doing all kinds line. of stuff. I got two lines there for a second. Oh, my God. So did I. In five, four, three. And this is episode 26 of a podcast without a name. Episode 26 of the podcast without a name. Yo, yo, yo. Full crew, Anthony, Rich, and myself, Joe. Back again after the new year. 2018 has arrived. We made it. Year number two of the Trump presidency and the podcast without a name. Happy New Year, everybody, by the way. Happy New Year. I hope everyone had a wonderful new year. So what are we drinking tonight, fellas? Might as well get that out of the way. I am drinking Bengali Six Point Brewery. Oh, that's very nice. Richard? Yeah. I'm drinking a triple distilled Patty's Irish Whiskey. Mm. Matured in oak in Ireland. In 1862. And it's uh, aged for at least three years due to the 1980, uh, uh, the 1980 Irish Whiskey Act. Oh, wow. Is that like a purity law kind of thing, like in Germany? Yeah, it's uh, it's the third most popular whiskey in Ireland. The first being Powers. Ooh. Well, I'm someone just fell, I think. I heard that, but um, I'm drinking Estella again. I've been defaulting to them lately. So here, <clears throat> so here we are. Did we lose uh, Anthony or something? I, I, mean, I heard like I hear paper rumbling and... <laughs> my uh, headphones fell. <laughs> oh, okay. Anthony's still with us, everyone. Don't worry about him. Sorry. <laughs> I have uh, techni- local technical difficulties going on, but local no, we're good. technical difficulties. Anyway, let's get moving on here. So uh, a lot of things on the plate. We probably won't get to everything. But we'll dive in here. We're starting off. We're trying something new, and you may have noticed at our last podcast, we're starting off with a little bit more of a kind of refreshing news or funny news or something in the beginning. And for uh, later on, we're going to touch on um, you know kind of the social media and you know censorship that's happening in Google, Facebook, and Twitter and whatnot. And we'll also jump into some thoughtful discussion on the alt right, regressive left, and and which came first. But before that. Um, just highlights from the Consumer Electronics Show that's going on. Um, it, by the time this is published, it will be done. So there might be some more cool stuff to be announced. Um, so just to caveat that, but I, I picked out three things here that I just kind of want to highlight because I thought it was interesting. One of them actually touches on a topic that we talked about in our last podcast. Uh, the first one here is uh, the Toyota's e-Palette is coming out. I believe they're slated to do some sort of beta testing or road testing with them in 2020. But what this is, is almost like it's a mobility technology of like a, an autonomous vehicle. That's kind of like a shell. And what can happen is companies can purchase this and retrofit it 
for whatever needs they want. So think about like, say Pizza Hut is going to retrofit it into a mobile pizza distributing station, right? Or you want to, you have a retail space and you're primarily online, but you want to be able to deliver real fast or provide some sort of quick retail space for someone to be able to view or try on things. You could retrofit these things. They could drive around autonomously and people could try on things and view things and stuff like that. But so it's kind of limitless. They're not necessarily like have a specific application. It's just meant to let companies kind of retrofit it with something. And they actually, if I read it correctly, the technology in it will be able to be kind of like, I don't want to say open sourced, but you'll be able to retrofit it with different like technology in regards to the autonomous vehicle systems that might come out in the future. They're really just building like the, I guess the backbone of the hardware for this. Um, but it's super cool. It looks like, I mean, obviously they had prototypes. So it looks really neat. We'll post it in your show notes. Um, the next thing I'll bring up, and we could talk about these a little bit after I bring them all up, but there's the Y fiber and this, this is an interesting product and it actually touches on uh, part of our discussion in our last podcast about net neutrality and the direction for which the ISP industry is going. And this is kind of taps right into that. What it is is a modular device that replaces street lamps in, in cities or wherever they may be. And you it comes with the high-powered LEDs, which is more energy efficient, so it'll save money in that regard. But it comes with different uh, ways of putting different technologies on it. You could put Wi-Fi networks that, could, that interchange, like a mesh network. You could put... Um, you can put surveillance cameras if you if you need something for security in terms of your city and stuff like that. Uh, there's a bunch of different things you could do with them, and it's really interesting because it really does talk about, or it really kind of goes into that, what is the next generation ISP going to look like? And this is this is like kind of getting to that real quick, um, using current infrastructure, saving cities money. Um, it seems pretty straightforward and like it's one of his ideas is like why didn't someone think about this before kind of thing but it's coming it looks really cool um and then my personal favorite the smart toilet so uh it's a toilet by i believe it is uh, i forget the name of the company uh kohler i believe it's called the kohler numi and it's a heated color lighting music functionality and a foot warmer on the toilet and it sounds like the most amazing thing since the I don't toilet know, seat. Since <laughs> since the toilet seat. Um, so those are kind of the three things. There are new technologies coming down the pipeline. I think it's really neat because they all they touch on. I mean, the, the one the toilet obviously touches on just my personal fascination love. with toilets. Yes, yeah. <laughs> but the Wi fiber and the neat tech, or not neat tech. I'm sorry. The Toyota's e palette really touches on some of the things that we've some of the problems that we're, we're facing in terms of like moving forward in the area of retail, like online retail and then the access to internet that we talk about. Right. Yeah. So the Wi the Wi-Fi or Anthony, like, I don't know if you had a chance to read it or not, but that kind of speaks directly to now. I don't think it's necessarily that technology you were talking about. Now it could be right, but I, they didn't necessarily speak to that in this announcement, but it does kind of hit on what you were talking about in the, our last podcast where ISPs are moving towards like more of a wireless ISP yeah. system, right? And that you could deliver very high speeds. And th this not only provides that 
functionality, but it also does provide a service to the cities that install it in terms of the lighting. So the lighting could also be strobe lights. It could be used for emergency situations. Like if a police officer is coming into the area, you could have the lights flash or, or, you know, if there's some sort of emergency, you could think about like citywide, like go in this direction, you know, like that mm-hmm. type of stuff. Right. It's interesting to look at, like, obviously it talks right into, like you said, what we were talking about last podcast. Um, I like the idea of, you know, having these built-in nodes, I guess, for uh, for Wi-Fi access, you know what I mean? Kind of takes a place of the ISP, um, especially as things go more toward a, a, a streaming for content and for, you know, just our overall content with our smartphones and everything. It gives you a, you know, what would seem like an endless uh, liquid... Um, you know, Wi-Fi connection hotspot basically throughout the entire city. The only the only issue I see with this is, uh, you know, this is probably going to be paid for or installed by each individual community, right, uh, mm-hmm. or county. Yeah. Um, so now you're going to be, you know, I, I'm not one of these people, but I, I can definitely see the writing on the wall here with certain people uh, that like the anonymity of... You know, their own ISP and their own cash. And while, you know, this might end up kind of uh, tracking, you know, it's another way for the man to see what you're oh, doing. Yeah, especially because you could also insert or install surveillance equipment, right, on these things. And it's that's part of one of the modulars they actually pitch at CES. So I, I completely get that. And, you know, I was kind of brainstorming a little bit on the whole concept that we were talking about in the past with, like, the content providers and the ISPs actually kind of probably going to cross paths kind of in terms of what they're trying to achieve. Like I see this as a step in a direction where you know how you turn on your TV set. Let's, let's say it's 1991 and you turn on your cable box, right? Internet's just, you know, not necessarily around maybe of dial up coming in. Right. But you're turning on your TV and you're changing channels, right? And you go to CBS, you go to NBC, you go. So the way I see this going is we're going to turn on our computing device, maybe even a TV, and our channels are going to be Wi-Fi options, right? Like, oh, look, here's a Comcast Wi-Fi connect. When I connect to that Wi-Fi, I'll have a certain level of connectivity that's based around Comcast content, right? And then it's like, okay, well, I don't want to watch that. So what's next on my Wi-Fi list, right? Oh, look, the city of Philadelphia, public broadcasting, all this type of stuff, right? Like you, and they'll all have different levels of what type of connectivity you're going to have. So this is how I see it's going. I actually want to research and see if there's any meat to this. Um, but it gives a consumer the option to use whatever internet connection they want based on a content that is known to be on those internet connections, just like we did with channels on TV. That's right? I, I was actually just going to say that, like, you know, it's almost going back to the local broadcast uh, type of idea, except using a, you know, obviously a, a much more advanced technology uh, than just airwaves. Um, you know, I'm, I'm curious if now they probably wouldn't allow this, uh, but I know there, there was a, a lot of talk before about, um, when the electric utilities or water utilities, uh, were installing smart meters, uh, that would, you know, keep track of your, your usage. And there was a lot of, uh, ad based companies, including Google and Apple that were trying to, talk to the municipalities to um, basically purchase 
uh, data so that they could target uh, certain marketing you know, police towards people that may need it. Like for instance, if it was an electrical thing and they see that you're using more power than your, all of your neighbors combined that they might, you know, maybe uh, target you for, I don't know, insulation or, you know, a better, you know, you know, whatever it might be. I'm curious if the cities uh, that might use this kind of technology could maybe sell some of the data um, and kind of create a revenue stream from something like that, where they're selling, you know, anonymous yet useful uh, data to, you know, to other companies. I know people would not like that, but it happens regardless. Yeah, whether- but you know what? It's it's if you want to use it for free. Now, there could be kind of a some technicalities there with a like it would be a truly at that point, if there's like a city supplied Wi-Fi mesh, that would be considered a public utility. Right. Um, so, yeah, they could come up with different ways to generate revenue from that. But in terms of selling your data, that might cross some sort of possibly constitutional issues. I'm not. I'm not quite Definitely, sure. Definitely, and, and I don't even mean like yeah. selling your data. I think but more maybe, like advertisements, right? And get get maybe a better idea. Yeah, maybe get a better idea of you know certain demographic type things that marketers like to know yeah. about a, a certain general area. You know, so maybe not exactly taking uh, data from uh, you know. In particular, like to a particular person or a particular lo- user, <laughs> a loser, user, but, um, you know, but maybe seeing, you know, like, okay, you have, you know, X amount of people in this particular city and a lot of them seem to be into a, uh, a certain type of product. And now maybe, a, a, a global company might say, Hey, you know what? Let's target, uh, this market more for our product um you know in this particular uh area you know yeah. or this particular and, region and or something it, like that i think that would be smart too on the mm-hmm. like i think it's a very smart idea. if the cities could pull it off and they could do it in a compliant way that doesn't necessarily infringe on anyone's rights or provide some sort of potential constitutional issue um, which might just mean that they regulate that in their end right like they don't just give the data out right they they provide an interface and let advertisers come set up their advertisements on their on their platform type of thing kind of like facebook right um yeah i mean i i, I think that that's what it, what i like about this technology and not just this technology but we're, we're starting to see it in all areas right including solar um now potentially wi-fi um and other like smart products um we're, we're starting to see that they're looking into not exactly making maybe making brand new types of technology, but different ways to bring that technology to you. Uh, you know, in solar, you know, we we talked about this before, where they're looking at solar, uh, you know, generating power, uh, like power generating solar shingles or windows or siding, things like that. You know, Wi-Fi utilizing infrastructure that that might be installed in a, a community to begin with for Wi-Fi and you know, et cetera. You know, there, this could expand into many different ways you know what i mean like why not just street lights why not have all kinds of different you know things that the municipality uses uh to provide you know connectivity for its its uh population you know what i mean so i think this could go in a lot of different ways and it you know maybe we're seeing the you know the beginning of this iceberg so to speak uh begin to build you know what i mean and and that would be kind of a, a neat thing because I think that brings technology into a, a totally different direction than what we've seen, uh, you know, with our, our current system where, you know, everything's very, uh, unidirectional, um, 
you know, in, in terms of how, de- you know, certain services are given to you, you know. So then wouldn't this uh, uh, start treating technology like this, Internet access, Wi-Fi services like a utility since it would be provided by municipalities and things like that? Yeah. In, in this format in particular, the way they deliver this. Yeah, it would. And I and would so be then vi- yeah. how does that speak to net neutrality? You know, well, which is pretty much that. Well, would net neutrality here. even matter at that point? Yeah, that, that I think that's what we're getting at here is that net neutrality doesn't necessarily make sense because now we're not talking about content providers and access to the content. We're talking about a much more higher level of competition when it comes to actually having access to the internet, right? Like the whole that that menu of internet providers on your Wi-Fi connection kind of thing. That and you, you could see, you could see the writing on the wall, even with what we had mentioned in our last podcast, uh, Joe, I think it was you that mentioned, you know, Facebook, uh, flying blimps overhead that were, you know, yeah. going to give some sort of connectivity, you know what I mean? Or, or some sort of VPN or, you know, I mean, there's, you know, the blimp idea kind of seemed like a, almost an archaic idea, you know, but, but this is actually kind of, uh, integrating it into what we're already using in our own infrastructure. It's cost savings too for the city. I mean, while granted now, I don't know what their initial investment would be to get these things up and running. However, the led lights will provide actually a significant cost savings over the current lighting system. They have that probably uses a shit ton of energy. Yeah. I mean, you know, keep in mind most, a lot of the street lamps that have been installed, I'm sure, uh, have been, you know, using some sort of LED or, or CFL type of technology to begin with. Okay. You know, I think the, the day of the incandescent light bulb are, are starting to see its end. <laughs> but then, but, like, uh, w- w- what I'm saying, though, is uh, because these, you know, street lamps or whatever would then be providing our, our Internet service and uh, because our municipalities would be servicing those uh, utilities. So then what, like, would cable providers have to pay municipalities in order to no, no, get what, access to what you would have then is you would, you would have almost like think about like a local public broadcasting TV station, right? Like there there's, you know, publicly funded over the air programming, which usually has really boring and local content. Yeah, PBS, you, NPR. Yeah, yeah. But you don't have to watch that, right? You could go watch your C- CNBCs or something, right? You could go watch other content. So same thing here. Comcast would be competing with them with their own over the air Wi-Fi exactly. connection. It could, could be free, but when you're on it, you only get Comcast content and limited access to the internet, right? But and you got to figure like access, in, in the idea of a utility, right? A utility is giving you the service so that you can use that service for whatever you're planning on using it. Right. So, you know, I can buy electricity from a utility and I can use that to power my TV or my HVAC unit or my lights or my whatever I buy that takes electricity. Those those other uh, companies or, or other products that I'm using the electricity for don't necessarily have a say in how the utility uh, does anything, you know, to it to an extent. Uh, but at the same so this would be like another tool or another utility that all right hey look here's the ability to connect now with that what do you use it for you know that's up to you that's up to content providers at that point to to still offer their own products but i think it would get away it would it would it would be the road that starts to uh get away from 
these ISPs and well, these content providers being your only choice of as an ISP. You know what I mean? It would actually put a little bit more um, competition in the market as well and kind of keep them honest, in, in my opinion. The, the main point here is that what we're getting at is that it's, since it's a Wi-Fi infrastructure, it, the cost and the barrier to entry is much lower for com- competitors in ISP space. So low in this realm, potentially, that cities can actually make a, a a good fiscal argument to actually do these things when they retrofit things like lampposts and stuff like that. But at the same time, you have the tra- you'll have the traditional providers like Comcast and Verizon also moving the Wi-Fi, which you see now with your Xfinity hotspots that if you just turn your foot on right now, you'll probably see three of them in your area. Then and other companies too can potentially do that and set up a Wi-Fi mesh network. the The cost of like digging literal fiber lines in the ground is very prohibitive for a lot of people who would like or companies that would like to start up in this industry. Like, who can really lay fiber across the country? Like that is multi billion, <laughs> if you not know, trillion when you, dollars. When you look that. at our current infrastructure, anyway, you know we're we're not. It's not the days of you know. A, uh, a, a copper phone pair that has to be strung along a network, like a physical network in order to uh, have connectivity to everybody. You know what I mean? Like even our fiber network right now, if we look at our, our own infrastructure right now, that's fiber. It goes from microwave to fiber back to, you know, a, a different type of communication median back to, you know, copper back to fiber. You know what I mean? Like there's so many different paths that it, it takes in different forms to get to the end user uh, before it's actually there. It's not really, you know, a piece of fiber that's coming straight to your house from from somewhere. So really, this is just another mode, uh, you know, for that that you know service to to get to you. You know what I mean? And and I think it's a a, cha- a game changer, honestly. Well, what I'm what I'm thinking of though is like now, right, with the uh, electric electric providers. Like we live in Pennsylvania, so we have uh, or you know Philadelphia area. So we have Pico, me and Anthony anyway. So having Pico, you still have the choice of saying, oh, I want to go with stream energy. I want to go with whatever other energy company that might be trying to sell me a service. But ultimately, those energy services are still at the behest of Pico because Pico is the one that services the lines that take care of the equipment. So to me, it seems like it would be kind of the same thing in that you know, I might have a choice in what I want to watch or what I want to listen to, but who is ultimately controlling well, and repairing it's a good and point. providing the, the devices the, that are that are the, giving us these the choices. difference in this situation is like if you if you use like the Pico example or, or any electrical utility example, you know, with all these different uh, companies that you know offer you deals for their generation of power, Pico is just providing the lines to get it to you there, right? The transmission and distribution to you. You know what I mean? Um, This would be a similar idea, right? Except the difference is with internet and with ISP and with connection, you don't have to... There's no generator somewhere that it has to be, you know, created and then distributed. It can... It's its its own... uh, you know, generation, so to speak. You know what but, I mean? But you have, but you have like the Wi-Fi hotspot, the device that generates that signal. Yeah, and that would be owned by. The no, but, so we would say. Right? So our argument here is that not there could be multiple Wi-Fi devices or whatever it might be. 
that provide that last mile to the consumer that could be stood up by multiple different companies as opposed to a Verizon and Comcast that runs a fiber or coaxial cable or whatever down your street into your house, right? Yeah, it's, like even if I wanted to create a, a, you know, if I wanted to take up my whole basement and make uh, make my entire basement just a bunch of servers and, and make, you know, my own uh, whatever, you know what I mean? Like server base here and, and create some way to connect or something, you know what I mean? Like you would... You would have that functionality, that that infrastructure to to make that happen, and of course it would be connected because that's how everything is. You know what I mean? But it would be more standalone, more independent, autonomous, I should say, from a a single source. Like because even Comcast and Verizon, it's not a single source. Although they created their their uh, product or their company to to seem like it's a single source. Like, hey, I'm getting my internet from comcast and it's just some building somewhere named comcast that's somehow providing everything to where we are but in, in reality it's 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 not that way there's not a, a centralized uh you know node that, that so then splits off everywhere you know what the, I mean? one, the one thing here too that, you, that people um don't typically understand about how the internet works is there's a thing called tier one providers for the internet and believe it or not they're generally not Comcast and Verizon, right? There, Comcast and Verizon, I think, would be considered tier two. So tier one is actually the global internet network, and co- uh, companies like CenturyLink, NTT, Cogent, and T- Tata Communications, and stuff like that. These are companies that are not household names because they're not consumer based. They're not consumer facing. They're business to business companies that provide that global internet connection. So they're going to be. Uh, still available like they are today. They will be available to startups in the future. Now, granted, some a company like Verizon and Comcast, you know, multi-billion-dollar companies might have a little bit more sway when when negotiating contracts with these backbone tier one providers. But the idea here is, uh, say, a startup could come up. I, personally, right? If if I only have say, let's say we're in this world, it's the Wi-Fi world, and it's only Comcast and my local municipality with Wi-Fi access in the area, right? My local municipality sucks. It's really slow. They don't have really good content or something. Like they limit stuff or something because they're just doing what they're doing. Same thing with Comcast. Maybe they're limiting, and I go, this sucks. Everyone in my neighborhood thinks this is horrible. In theory, I could, you know get some sort of uh, high speed and, and contract with them, get some investors and, cre- and create a high speed connection with the tier one providers and set up a bunch of Wi-Fi in my neighborhood and say, hey, everyone, for $5, I could give you Wi-Fi connectivity with no restrictions, no, you know, no data caps. And now I, and you don't want your, you know, you know, you don't want your municipality because the government's spying on you when you're using that. You don't want Comcast because they're not letting you access Netflix, right? I'll give it to you because I want your business, right? Yeah. And it, it opens it up to small players, you know, yeah. to enter the market. Whereas right now the telecommunication giants are what control the entire market. You know, they are the market makers and there's no way around it at this point. This, this gives an opportunity. It's I think much cheaper to have to put some Wi-Fi access points in than to run cable or fiber down the street. Mm. Much cheaper, like a fraction. Yeah, pennies on a dollar. Yep. I I get I get all that, but I mean, to me, it's it still seems like uh, you'd have to have permission 
you know, to put your devices in certain areas and who who's going to give you those permissions. And, you know, uh, funny enough that you say that, Rich, my next thing that I was going to kind of question with this and, and you just reminded me is what what security type stuff would, would you know, what I mean, like th- this, this actually kind of opens up to a lot more of a, you know, of a, of a potential threat for hacking and cybersecurity issues um, as well. Right. Because now you're not really looking at uh, things on a global network, so to speak, you're looking at things on a, on a more local level, which might be a lot easier for uh, certain, you know, cyber uh, attackers to, to, you know, play their game. You know, I'm curious, uh, curious what would be put into place, I guess, in terms of like firewalls and stuff like that for them to be able to actually make this. Well, I mean, secure. It's, it's the same as, um, the good, well, here's the good thing about that, right? So the protocol wouldn't necessarily be anything new. It's still going to be the IP protocol. It's just going to be wireless. And we, we have that now. So generally speaking, it's pretty secure. I mean, what you're talking about would be state level, man in the middle type of operations like can people get passwords to wi-fi you know if it's a public wi-fi yeah people can get on that it might not be as secure as you would think but at the end of the day no matter how you're connecting to the internet you shouldn't be relying on that internet's connection to provide security for you you need to be connecting through ssl websites you need to be possibly using a vpn if it's possible um you need to be using your own firewall on your home network if you're going to connect. Right. So your security comes down to your local level. Yeah. I think, I think that that is what we're going to have to depend on in the future anyway. Like whether we go this route or we go in the same route, that's what we have to depend on that right now anyway, because true at some, at some way, shape or form, any network is going to be vulnerable and you just have to mitigate it as much as possible. Personally. True that. And here's the thing with the cyber stuff, right? A lot of people tend to think like there's a sophisticated person collecting packets and looking at the ones and zeros. But most of the cyber things you hear about on TV are social social engineering. People who got people's passwords, not because they stole them per se from like a hard drive, but because they convinced them to stay logged in or give them their password because they spoofed the website, right? Like stuff like that, right? So be careful about what type of websites you're going on. Make sure it's a real website. Make sure it's SSL, so HTTPS. And don't be stupid about your passwords. Every major leak you've heard about was because someone got a password of an employee of that company. Are you saying one, two, three, four, five is not a good password? Pretty much. Hypothetically. Well, maybe if you go one, two, three, four, five, six, you're okay. Or a capital one. Yes, a capital, <laughs> capital underline capital one. <laughs> well, we really yeah, went yeah. far into this. We didn't. Ex- I mean, I guess our main topic tonight was uh, the future <laughs> of Wi-Fi or internet yeah. networks, and how does it affect net neutrality? Yeah, I <laughs> topic guess topic number uh, one. <laughs> topic number one. So, so let's move into uh, a, a, a more interesting. Uh, well, that that was pretty interesting. Was, actually, I thought, but, I thought that was great. I, I like that. But I do like to, uh, I would like to go into maybe um, the whole fact checking segment. Well, so the, the next topic here is not too far off from the CES stuff, which we just talked about uh, with the new technologies, because uh, Google had released their new modular on their search engine, which does uh, fact checking or at least presents fact checking to users who are searching on certain things. So, for example, if you search a website, 
if you put like uh, you know anthony.com uh, you potentially will see something come up on the right. Usually you see things like about Anthony.com, like, oh yeah, here's the wiki page or it was established this year. But now there's a modular on there that says fact checking or reviews or something. I forget what it's called. And Disclaimer, what ha- Anthony.com is not associated with Anthony from the podcast without no, a name. That's, that'd be a pretty cool domain name to have though. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. Or Joe.com or rich.com. That'd be awesome yeah. if they were available. <laughs> um, so, what we have here is a really interesting realm we're moving into when it comes to kind of like censorship and, and free speech, but not free speech in a constitutional realm, because we all know that the constitution doesn't necessarily really protect free speech in private sector. Right. Like I, I really don't have a free speech, right. As a government worker, like I can't go in my work and just say, give give like this political speech on the front step you know porch of my my building and and not potentially have some repercussions um and that's probably the case for just about anyone right in in the private sector and and even public public sector in terms of like jobs so the issue here is so the protections from the government it's it's fine it's needed it's it was needed back when it was written up it's needed now but the reality is the government doesn't necessarily have access to to the type of speech that we're having. So in the past, it was like if you're out in this, you know, the city city hall or a town square and you're preaching or or you're, you know, trying to, you know, uh, you know, campaign against the local mayor or something like the mayor can't send the police out to lock you up. Right. Like that type of thing. Right. Um so what we have now, though, is the, the the town square has now become Facebook, has become Twitter, but and it's also now become more of a global town square, right? And I mean, sure, governments can literally go to these websites and see it; they're not necessarily restricted, but they're not the the town mayor is not trolling Twitter and looking for his political foes and and sending out police to lock people up on Twitter, right? It's the what I see happening is the the threat here is now now the mode for which we actually use our speech is owned by some really large technology companies like Google and Twitter and you know you can even throw Amazon in there because they do the cloud services and stuff like that which is the backbone for a lot of these these uh, platforms and Facebook and and whatnot and it's so this is this this could potentially be a bigger problem than the government government may have ever been. Mm -hmm. If you think about it, it's a, it's a, it's a bigger problem on that aspect. And one of the, the problems that I see with it, and this is going a completely different direction of what you were just alluding to, um, is that, you know, right now we live in a world, right? Where on social media, in a world, in a world. No, but so anyway, (laughs) we, we live in a world where, you know, you go on on social media, and if something is a meme, if something is is uh, uh, proposed to you from uh, a particular user that has a lot of followers, a lot of people take that as fact, right? And we know this; we've talked about this plenty of times. So now you're kind of entering a stage where not only is it somebody with a lot of followers, it's a global company, right? That can have full control over what it's providing you, what type of information it's providing you, right? So any biases that exist within that company that fits their profile or their narrative, so to speak, 
um, is now going to be, uh, I don't want to say delegated, but it's, it's going to be um, dispersed to their public um, as truth, right? So something might be fact-checked and it's an algorithm that's fact-checking it. And the fact-checking might be coming from a super conservative site or a super liberal site or whatever their, their sources might be um, and providing more biased information to the public. Um, and, and I think that could pose a, a separate issue, you know, as far as a, a trust, right? So people are trusting this information because it comes from, you know, just like what we see with like Fox News, right? Some people trust Fox News just because it's a, a big company, you know what I mean? Or, or whatever. And, and in reality, it's a bunch of bulls. So like, you know, we, we might see that at an even bigger scale with Google and Facebook and Twitter and, and whoever so, uh, coming into that kind of game. So we are seeing this at a bigger scale now. And, and uh, I want to kind of clarify something you said, cause you said the algorithm might be fact checking the algorithm algorithms in this case, aren't necessarily fact checking. They're aggregating the fact checkers, yes. right? They're not necessarily, they're not doing the fact checking. And that is kind of the problem because the fact checkers themselves are not really good fact checkers. <laughs> so like I just took a say, so Snopes, I have a personal experience with Snopes. I know that they had put out a story one time, they were fact checking a story and they said it was wrong, right? I had personal direct source that they were actually wrong. I sent them that source. I mean, who am I, right? They were like, oh, it's another asshole emailing us, right? Yeah. But I know for a fact they were wrong. Like there's, there is, as the sun comes up in the morning, I knew they were wrong. Like there was no way around it and they were wrong, but, but their fact check said otherwise, right? So the fact checks, fact checkers are not good, right? And, and first off, they're biased in themselves. That's a problem because like you were just alluding to, this we're in an environment where I mean, according to Facebook's own research, right? Facebook has admitted that so their social media platform has the ability to affect people psychologically, negatively. Well, it's most notably a negative way because this is the first time they've acknowledged that it could be a negative impact, right? Well, we we sign up for that as well. Yeah. I mean, that that is no secret. That's part of the stuff that nobody reads when they join yeah right? so so they know a social experiment exactly so they know they're able to experiment with us see how we change our behaviors based on what we're seeing on facebook and we know there's actually a, an effect whether positive or negative on us meaning we're internalizing it's impactful for us right so you we know that that's happening right then on the other hand they're curating their quote unquote fact checking and essentially providing a specific worldview based on their quote unquote fact checkers, which we know will have be impactful to you and have some sort of uh, effect on you in the long term. Mm -hmm. So that's the problem. We have these groups and, and for the most part, they're all kind of very politically lined in the same way. Sure. Uh, and well, I'm you not know, sure it's funny why that's happening. Well, we, and we, <laughs> we, we talk about, you know, how, how corporations or big corp, you know, let's call it or, or big business, um, you know, lines the pockets of the politicians and blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, you, you hear that narrative all the time, which, you know, of course exists in reality. Um, but I think we do forget that companies like Facebook and Twitter and Google and Apple and all of them really are very, very large companies with a huge um, ability uh, to, you know, 
make people think a certain way, right? And 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 as you alluded to, uh, you know, with Facebook, but it, it goes along with with all of these companies. So, you know, with that said, these people are being tapped into as well. You know what I mean? They're 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 no different uh, in terms of the political game than uh, you know whatever uh, a Walmart or a whatever. You know what I mean? Like so, you know how we villainize a certain company, but we trust this type of company, even though they're also multi-billion dollar companies, you know what I mean? And, and they're going to have certain, um, they're going to have certain things that they're going to want to try to do in their, in their own, uh, you know, way, you know, based on their own propaganda, based on what they want to happen or, or, you know, what politician they're in the pockets of, or, you know, et cetera. So we don't see it as much and we seem to trust it more because it feels like an open platform, but at the same time, it's an open platform that is also used uh, in in a very similar way as these other companies. So what uh, what what are you guys advocating for them? Because what what it almost sounds like is um, because obviously Google, Facebook, Twitter, they're all private enter- entities. So I mean, uh, if you want to be libertarian about it, why should you know uh, uh, we be uh, concerned about? regulating you know how they conduct their business because it's their business right they have they have rights to conduct their business the way they want it's just that uh you know their businesses happen to affect a very large portion uh of the population so i hate to use the term slippery slope because slippery slope is something that gets overused but um if we're going to respect corporations to be able to say not bake a cake for a gay couple shouldn't we have the same respect for somebody like google for saying we don't want this kind of speech i uh on something that we are providing you know to you i agree i think that uh there's a couple approaches for me i think i'll default back to what my kind of answer on that is for a lot of things is that this is an education thing i think people need to understand what's happening and and kind of follow it away and understand it because it could be it could come back and haunt them and i think right now you see a lot of these things affecting a lot of conservative websites and conservative viewpoints and if you're on the other side of that if you're on the left and you're a liberal you need to you should be concerned about this because this could turn on a dime on you and you need to understand that it's not going to feel good when it turns on a dime right um but but it feels right now that that really the people that that are um, benefiting from this are people that may have more liberal views. I mean, Google as a company, um, it was what was it? Maybe a five months, six months back, where that uh, that guy was fired for. Uh, they said what he wrote was something was hateful, yeah. and it really, when you look at it, it wasn't. Um, you know, so if they can, you know, fire employees for for things that they feel don't represent Google then what's keeping them from suppressing speech oh, nothing. on their Absolutely. platforms that and I, I they feel don't represent their company. I don't think there needs to be a regulatory thing for this, right? I think the the other thing that these companies need to start thinking about though is like my first point was that if you're liberal, even though you're benefiting from this from it right now, you need to recognize that it's happening. 
and maybe you shouldn't play along with it just because it's benefiting you right now, right? Because it could turn around on you and it could be the other way around in a couple of years or whatever, right? The other thing is this this area to me is where net neutrality really is a thing, right? Because you're talking about companies suppressing speech. Granted, they're private companies, but to me, this is actually something that could be more impactful than say a company throttling Netflix because they, it's too much money on their network, right? This actually could eventually be the real net neutrality argument. And people need it. Like, I think just people need to be understanding of that and frown upon this on these different social networks. I mean, I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but you, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter probably account for 95% of social media, right? So if we don't get smart with this stuff, it's going to end up biting us in the butts. And that's kind of my point on this. And it, I think there's nothing wrong with, with them doing what they want to do, exploring their, you know, opportunities as a company, but, and, and maybe they'll come back around, but I think the reason why everyone needs to maybe think about this a little deeper is because the chickens will come home to roost, right? Like, that's that's what you need to be thinking to yourself just because today i could go on the internet and i could type whatever i want because i'm liberal and no one's gonna censor me no one's gonna demote me in the twitter feeds and stuff like that doesn't mean in two years it's the complete opposite right i I know people don't necessarily think that way but we need to try to think that way because that really could happen but i mean given the given the climate of, uh, I mean, the political climate, the the, the cultural climate today, uh, I would say uh, society as a whole, you know, at least the young part of society, the people that are going to be using these platforms uh, generally are more left-leaning. So, I mean, these are the people that, that are going to be filling those jobs and going into those companies and doing those sorts of things. Um, when you look at the base on more right-leaning people, uh, a lot of them are older people, or I would say probably people over the age of like 30, 35. Um, whereas I would say most liberal-leaning people, you know, that I know, I mean, I, I know a lot our own age and older, but there's a lot more, I would say, younger people um, that are leaning that way than, than the other. So, I mean, unless you're saying something outrageous, like, you know, we need to exterminate white people or, you know, if you don't uh, marry somebody that's not in your race, you're a racist. Like, unless you're saying crazy things like that, what you're going to end up with is sort of just this beige um, sort of liberal kind of platform. I mean, it's not very severe now. I mean, they still allow Milo. I mean, Milo got kicked off of Twitter, but he didn't get quick uh, kicked off of Facebook as of yet. Um, I'm not sure how he is on YouTube. I believe he still exists on YouTube, but um, there's really like, I know um, um, not Steven Crowder, uh, not Sam Harris, uh, Ruben, Ruben yeah. Dave Ruben. He, he recently left YouTube and went to pa- Patreon which is, you know, well, he, smaller. he didn't leave YouTube. He uh, he started a Patreon because YouTube demonetized all his videos. Right. So yeah. essentially, I mean, they're controlling, you know, like why if, if that's his livelihood, why would he stay with something that's not going to provide him any benefit? So Patreon is like a, a paid service. You know, how many people 
are going to be turned off by having to pay to listen to something that they could have listened to for free before. It's so, chilling. It's a chilling effect. You yeah. Hear a lot of I mean, free speech stuff. Yeah. It's uh, I mean, it's something to be very concerned about and that's why, I mean, uh, as much as I hate to say it, maybe there should be some sort of regulation or something, because I really don't know if there can be another company like a startup that would be like YouTube that would be more, you know, um, accepting of people from all sides or, you know, what have you. It's. You know, but in terms of regulation, what would regulation actually look like? You know what I mean? Because now you're talking about government input, right, in, mm-hmm. into what's said. So that that could also be a slippery slip as well. You know, really, it comes down to there should be should be an open platform, an open you know platform that you know all constitutional you know rights in terms of free speech are you know given the light of day on. You know what I mean? Where you know nobody. Uh, based on you know their view or their you know talking points are uh, hurt in any way, whether it's monetarily or you know mm-hmm. by being blackballed. Let's just say, you know what I mean. So you know the the fact that any of that goes on in the first place is is kind of uh, well chilling in a different way, yeah. <laughs> you know, in a not so good way. So this really does kind of hit on my the the next segment that I was going to get to, is, which is just talks about the regressive left and alt right, but. The, the fundamental point in this clip I'm going to play really kind of touches on what we're talking about. Like, Rich, you were talking about how most young people are liberal, and it does seem like the public opinion kind of sways more liberal. And I, I would agree with that. I think we're, we're, we need to understand that I think people 20 years ago were saying that too, right? So I, I think what's happening is we're always going to be in a position where we go, the young people seem to be liberal and the more older people seem to be more conservative. And I would argue that because of the extremes, maybe even on both sides, that there's probably a little bit more of a anti left being created. And maybe that's, that doesn't necessarily mean they're right leaning. doesn't mean they're alt right. It could mean that they're just anti left. Right. Um, and the clip I'm going to play is from Steven Pinker. He's a, he's a a psychologist, a professor in psychology at Harvard. And he himself is generally a pretty liberal person, but he probably is given the best characterization of the alt-right to date and why they're around and how they came about. And it really does touch on this fact checking, right. And talking about facts and what I want people to understand is a lot of these fact checkers aren't necessarily checking the underlying facts or checking opinions. And if you're going to check an opinion, it, it, it's just going to be biased through and through. And we see this a lot with say like the daily wire wire. That's the Ben Shapiro website. Like um, I was listening to his podcast earlier today and he was making an argument that Snopes was che- fact checking his opinion. They weren't looking at the research. So he was, he was quoting like Pew research and stuff like that. They never fact checked his actual facts that he was using to formulate his opinion. They were just fact checking his opinion. So that fundamentally is not the spirit of fact checking, which I guess is kind of tainted right now, but let's listen to Steven Pinker real quick. We're getting on 50 minutes here. So let's, I, I don't think I'm gonna play this whole clip. It's pretty long, but just, just listen to him for a few minutes and then we could have a quick discussion and wrap things up. The other um, way in which I, I, I do agree with this my is Steven Pinker, that, that, that uh, professor of psychology that, at Harvard uh, University, uh, an enormous amount of harm in in the sliver of the population that might be 
I don't, wouldn't want to say persuadable, but certainly uh, whose affiliation might be up for grabs, comes from the um, uh, often highly um, literate, highly intelligent people who uh, gravitate to the alt-right, uh, internet savvy, uh, media savvy, who um, uh, often are um, radicalized in that way, who, who swallow the red pill, as the saying goes, the illusion from, from, from the matrix, when they are exposed to the first time to true statements that have never been voiced in college campuses or in the New York Times or in respectable media, uh, that are almost like a bacillus to which they have no uh, immunity. And they are immediately infected with both a feeling of outrage that these truths uh, are unsayable uh, and no defense against uh, uh, taking them to what we might consider to be rather repellent conclusions. Let me give you some examples. Um, so here is a, um, a fact that's going to sound you know, ragingly controversial, but is not. And that is that um, capitalist societies are better than communist ones. Okay? So if you, if you doubt it, then just uh, ask yourself the question, would I rather live in South Korea or North Korea? Uh, would I rather live in West Germany in the 1970s or East Germany or in the 1960s? So th this is not, uh, I, I submit that this is actually not a controversial statement, but in university campuses, it is considered, would be considered flamingly radical. Number two, uh, here's another one. Men and women are, uh, are, are not identical in their life priorities, in their sexuality, uh, in, their, uh, in their tastes and interests. Again, this is not controversial to anyone who is even glanced at the data. The kind of vocational interest tests of the kind that your high school guidance counselor gave you have been given to millions of people. And men and women give different answers as to what they want to do for a living and how much time they want to allocate to family versus uh, career and so on. But you kind of you can't say it. I mean, someone, a very famous person on this campus did say it. And uh, we all know what happened to him. And he's no longer, well, he is on this campus, but no longer in the same office. Uh, here's a, uh, a, a third fact that is just not controversial, although it sounds controversial, and that is that different ethnic groups commit uh, violent crimes at different rates. You can go to the Bureau of Justice Statistics, look it up on their website. The uh, homicide rate among African Americans is about seven or eight times higher than it is among European Americans. And uh, terrorism, go to the Global Terrorist Database and you find that uh, worldwide the overwhelming majority of suicide terrorist acts are, are committed by Islamist uh, extremist groups. Now, if you've never heard these facts before uh, and you stumble across them or someone mentions them, it is possible to, uh, to, to come to some extreme conclusions, such as that, uh, that women are inferior, that African Americans are naturally violent, that we all ought to be anarcho-capitalists and, uh, and uh, do away with all regulation and social safety nets, um, that, uh, that most terrorism in this country is the fault of, of Muslims. Uh, now, these are unwarranted conclusions because for each one of these facts, there, is a, there are very powerful counterarguments for why they don't license racism and sexism and anarcho-capitalism and so on. <laughs> the fact that men and women aren't identical uh, does not 
has no implications for whether we should discriminate against women for a number of reasons. One of them is for any traits in which the sexes differ, the two distributions have enormous amounts of overlap so that you can't uh, draw a reliable conclusion about any individual from group averages. Uh, number two, the uh, principle of uh, opposition to racism and sexism is not an, uh, a factual claim that the sexes and races are indistinguishable in every uh, aspect. It's a political and moral commitment to treat people as individuals as opposed to prejudging them by the statistics of, of their group. Third, we know that some of the statistical generalizations about races and sexes change over time. So what is true now may not necessarily be true in uh, 10 or 20 years. So these are all reasons why you can believe that the sexes are different and be a uh, very strong feminist. Uh, why you can believe that differences uh, between the, uh, the, the uh, races exist and be very strongly opposed to any form of racism. In the case of, say, rates of violent crime, it used to be, uh, go back uh, 100 years, um, the rate of uh, violent crime among Irish Americans was far uh, higher than among other ethnic groups. That obviously changed. There's no reason that that can't change in the case of, of uh, current racial differences. Uh, in the case of terrorism, the majority of domestic terrorism is committed by right-wing extremist groups, not by uh, Islamic groups within, within this country. And of course, through much of its history, Islam was far more uh, enlightened than Christendom. There was no uh, equivalent of the Inquisition. There was no equivalent of the wars of religion uh, in, in the uh, classical history of, of uh, Islam. And finally, in the case of uh, the fact that capitalist, capitalism is really a better system than, uh, than Marxism, every successful capitalist society has regulation, um, has a social safety net, and in fact, some of the countries with the strongest social safety nets uh, are also the countries that are most friendly, that are most market friendly, that have the greatest degree of economic freedom. So these are all reasons why you can believe all of these and not necessarily drift toward uh, extremist positions. In fact, why you can be a progressive, a centrist, a liberal, even a leftist and believe all of these because you're exposed not only to the facts, but how to put them in context. Now, let's say that you have never even heard anyone mention these facts. The first time you hear them, you're apt to say, number one, the truth has been uh, withheld from me by universities, by mainstream media. Uh, number, uh, and moreover, you will be vindicated when people who voice these truths are suppressed, shouted down, uh, assaulted, all the more reason to believe that the that, that the left, that the mainstream media, that universities can't handle the truth. Uh, so they get vindicated over and over again. But worst of all, you're never exposed to the ways of putting these facts into context so that they don't lead to racism and sexism and, uh, and uh, extreme forms of uh, anarcho-libertarianism. So the uh, politically correct left is doing itself an enormous disservice when it renders certain topics undiscussable, especially when the, uh, the facts are clearly behind them, because they leave people defenseless the first time they hear them uh, against the most uh, extreme and uh, indefensible conclusions possible. If they were uh, exposed, then the rationale for putting them into uh, proper political and moral context could also be uh, articulated, and I don't think uh, you would have uh, quite the extreme backlash. So 
It, we played the whole clip, by the way. I didn't mean to. Um, yeah, that was that was wonderful. Was that was it, actually it was really, great. really great. Very good yeah. explanation. What he's saying here is the 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 emergence of say an alt right or the Trumpian base, right, is is almost directly related to the left's inability to actually accept the facts and provide a coherent and logical counter argument. They just, they essentially reject the fact as racist or whatever you want to call it and, oh, excuse me, do not acknowledge it. And therefore it leaves the counter argument to, to go to an extreme because there's no counterbalance, right? And that's the basis for his, his argument. That's what he was saying there was if you if they took a different position if they said okay these are the facts we recognize them but here is why this is and he even laid them out he told you he gave you the counter more rational argument as to why we see those facts that seem on the surface to be racist or misogynistic or something like that right and he actually in his little eight minute speech there was able to give you the quick rational counter arguments to it, whatever degree they're valid or, or whatever, who cares? The point is it's a strong valid argument for which is not there if you just reject the facts to begin with. And that's the underlying problem. Yeah, I mean, and, and you know, I want to make sure that we're careful about, you know, we're talking about the uh, alt-right versus the left um, it's not all left. It's not all right. We're talking about the regressive left and the alt right, correct? And and the, yeah, the same yeah. dynamic, you know, occurs uh, the other way around yeah, as absolutely. well. I think yep. we're seeing it. You know, <clears throat> we're seeing it a little bit more from the far left to the extreme right uh, right now because of who we have as a president. Um, if the same type of arguments were being made uh, during. Um, you know, the administration of, of a uh, of a, a Democrat, uh, I think we'd be able to say a lot of the same what, stuff the what, other way. What it really real quick, what it, what it really is, is it's a cautionary tale, right? Because we can take this individually, no matter where you are, where you feel you are in a political spectrum. What he's really saying is, if someone provides you with an argument, don't just dismiss it, right? Like you if you really want to engage in a thoughtful debate with someone to just preemptively dismiss it as that's wrong. It's racist. It's, or it's wrong. It's, Oh, you're a tree hugger or something like that. Right. It's not going to serve your best interest in any way, shape or form to just do, to do that because your best interest is to understand what they're saying Listen you know, to funny, the argument and funny provide enough, a counterbalance and, to that argument, right? Funny enough, uh, you know, just in in regular social media encounters that I've I've had in the past um, with you know friends that are, are generally very left leaning, um, you know, they would post something and I would pose a uh, a particular argument, right? Um, just honestly, like in a way to better understand their viewpoint and maybe just make them critically think a little bit more about what they're saying and what I'm saying. And I'm usually uh, dismissed with, you know, the, uh, for instance, the, the one that drives me nuts is he'll say like, okay, I guess you just know everything about everything without, without actually like, so I'll, I'll, I'll make some sort of uh, comment. 
And, you know, it'll be somewhat articulated, you know, to, to make a point to maybe start a conversation. And it's very obvious that I'm trying to start a conversation about it, not just shout somebody down. And I get the, you know, okay, yep, yep, you're just, yeah, you know everything and, and that's it. And they dismiss it, um, at, which makes me internally become very defensive at that point, right? Um, and so I have, you know, really tried to practice the uh, patience thing, you know what I mean? And, and kind of back myself off of it and just say, okay, this is not really a, a going to turn into a conversation. So I'm not going to continue feeding the fire, I guess, so to speak. Um, but, you know, a lot of people, but that's taken practice and I'm still not 100% great at it. And, and I think a lot of people are very bad at it. Um, you know, it, it turns the other side of the argument, if it is even an argument, um, it turns the other side of the argument very defensive, which makes them much more on the, you know, uh, radical opposing side. You know, I've noticed with certain people, I mean, hell, including my own father, who I can actually agree with something they say, but if they perceive me as somebody that's going to disagree with what they say, they will dismiss me if immediately, even if I'm actually agreeing with what they say, but posing a few facts. And, and it's an amazing dynamic that you see. But that actually, uh, I can have a conversation with somebody and actually be agreeing with them. And they can react in a way that actually makes me feel like I need to get defensive. You know, and, and that's, that's a funny dynamic, I think. The thing that I found the most, um, I guess I would say, uh, from my <laughs> grad school day is of is that that he's saying that people in the alt right were radicalized by mainstream media and uh uh college campuses because um you know they they were told that these facts you know are wrong in some way and uh it goes back to your point joe i think in one of our very first episodes of the podcast where you said you know pay attention to your emotions you know when you feel yourself getting upset by something or somebody says something and it, it makes you start to kind of feel a certain way, you know, take a step back, kind of review what was said and do some research and, you know, um, come to, you know, a rational opinion. So if, if the, um, you know, the mainstream media to use his term and, and college campuses are radicalizing people on the right, then what's radicalizing people on the left? Well, you, you know, I think so what it, is, I think what it comes down to is I think we 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 put too much weight on the idea that people disagree politically. I think what the real issue with with discourse politically or non-political. OK, the, the biggest issue with with discourse is all psychological. OK, it's how people react to other people. Um, how people are perceiving what somebody else is saying or how they're reacting to you, you know? So, you know, stupid example, if I'm walking down the street and I say hello to somebody and they look at me with a dirty look and keep walking, I'm going to feel a certain way, right? Or if you hold the door for somebody and they don't say thank you, you might feel a certain way, right? So when we try to engage in a certain conversation and somebody reacts in a negative way that we may or may not be expecting at that point, we're going to feel a certain way. And that creates uh, not only does that create a, a stall in your conversation at that time, but it also creates a certain 
subconscious bias, right, in your own mind about that person or that type of character, right? And as that grows in social media, we've been able to see this dynamic play over and over and over again. You start to see a trend in certain types of people and certain belief systems, and it might make you resent that particular belief system or that particular type of person, you know? And and so I, I really feel that it has less to do with ideologies and political stances and more to do with the actual uh, social psychology that's involved with it. But I mean, he just used, um, you know, these large institutions to say that people were radicalized because of the dismissal or lack of acceptance of an idea or facts by one side. So you're saying the alt-right was radicalized by the left, you know, the mainstream media and, and college campuses. So what was Emotions. Where did the radicalization on the other side Emotion. come from? Emotion. So I think, and here's and here's kind of why we can't like really, as much as it's easy to take pot shots at the extreme left, right? Because of some of their outrageousness, I think really at the end of the day, they're they mean well by it, right? Like it's just it's it's an emotional thing, and I think with with any area, you have to be careful of your emotions, whether it's in your personal political life or your personal relationships or your interactions with your friends or your career or investing with your money and stuff like that. You need to take your emotions out as much as you can. Now, you can't dismiss them all the way because emotions are kind of important to our humanity. But I think when it comes to, um, you know, how we interact as human beings, it's something that's very overwhelming for us. And, you know, I know I always kind of go back to Sam Harris and, and on this, but he has a recent podcast where he talks about consciousness and uh, neurobiology of, of consciousness. And one of the things that they touch on really close is this idea that um, how we kind of perceive our world and how we make decisions and, and things like that is kind of tainted by emotions, right? The emotions are co- almost considered irrational in, in terms of the you know reality of the world that we live in it's actually really fascinating and, so, and very thick so it's hard to really listen to but I would I would recommend trying to pick up his last podcast if you really want to dig into what it really means to have the emotions affect our consciousness and how we go about our lives it's really interesting and it kind of really dives into that but I think I don't think anyone from the left as crazy as they may sound and you know, and then you know the subsequent alt right that counters the left, you know, being a, largely a product of countering the, that left. I don't think anyone was like malicious. I don't think they're really out to like, okay, I have this agenda of I just want this world to burn. We all suck. Well, maybe there are people like that, but um, I think it's rooted in good faith. I think that's really what it it's, is. It's rooted in good faith until it becomes militant. You know what I mean? Yeah. In, in yeah. nature. And everyone takes things to extremes, right? On both to, sides. To, yeah. and But to me, I mean, it just seems very strange. It, to, to me, his whole... The, I mean, what I got from his argument is that we have tangible sources of why people on the right become radicalized yeah. to where the left, it's some ethereal thing like, oh, emotions. You know, it's... Uh, to me, it seems a little... Well, he, he touches so like, to me, to, to me to, well, I'm, just to finish my point, it, to me, it seems like the people that he would say are radicalized on, on the uh, right are, are, to me, he was making the case that they're more free thinking than people that are radicalized on the left. Yeah. And if, if I had more time, I could probably argue that that point as wrong. But I mean, it, it, 
it, it all makes sense, but I think both sides, okay, when you're talking about both radical sides, play off of each other. You know, I think it, it escalates to a, a point where it looks like, you know, one causes the other, and, and one does cause the other just as the other causes the first one. You know what I mean? I think it really has to do with the escalation of emotion and how each side plays off of each other. It just so happens that a lot of it is, you know, built up in, you know, uh, universities and stuff like that, where people are learning formal education and they're they're kind of uh learning these biases as well at a very young and impressionable age so they come up with the, these thought processes uh, rather than coming up with their own critical thoughts you know they're gonna play off of each other everybody's beliefs are different and and really it comes down to somebody's character and how their ability to hack actually have a conversation uh with each other goes and i mean really full circle wise episode 26 this is exactly why we started this podcast, right? To talk about yeah. critical thinking or the lack thereof. Yeah. And, and in regards to this whole conversation, I think it's just, you know, it's who knows, like, you know, whether it's emotions or some sort of other political motivation, I think this is worth exploring more. And I think we could probably have a whole nother podcast on this. Like, well, why do we see this, you know, what, what came first, the chicken or the egg kind of thing, right? The alt-right, alt-left, or aggressive left, or whatever you want to call them. Uh, yeah, it's, it's worth exploring, especially like, you know, I like to consider us to be observers in all of this. I mean, we're not without opinion and we never claim to be without opinion, right? So, you know, this is kind of what we're all about to listen to this stuff and listen to these arguments and, and kind of weigh, weigh to the merits of them and, and, and look at the different research. And what does the data say? You know, um, I want to learn. I mean, at the end learn. of the day, I want to learn. You know, I want to yeah. learn what other people are thinking. I want to maybe even take something from that to, to add to my own belief system, you know, but I, I think, you know, people, uh, kind of forget that there are certain people out there that are looking to learn and not looking to argue and you know unfortunately there are so many people that want to argue that that becomes a uh, a lost cause i guess yep. and this was episode 26 of the podcast without a name you can find us on facebook at the podcast without a name you can find us on twitter at no name podcaster we are publishing all these episodes on soundcloud spreaker itunes google play iHeartRadio. Pod, uh, pocket cast everywhere. I don't know. I'm probably forgetting them. Wherever you find podcasts, we will be there. iTunes. iTunes. I said iTunes, but I'll say it again. Oh, iTunes. You did. Yes, I said, that's good. And that's all right. Um, and Rich, and you're going to have the last word, like always. So start thinking what you have 15 seconds. Um, yeah. So uh, jump on our website. Please, please like, please rate, please comment. These are all things that help us and share. And Rich, in three, two, one disestablishmentarianism disestablishmentarianism that's yeah. a long word yeah that's a, that's a long one it is one of the longest words in the english language yes disestablishmentarianism Ooh, well done uh, uh.